Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and He has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what He's done in our life? and how he can change somebody else's life too. While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people when it comes to the matter of of sharing their faith or evangelism get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. Brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great. But when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life. And, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer we asked a thousand christians you know what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-christian and these are the top 10 questions that came up so let's get ready because if we feel ready then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, did there seem to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions? And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, And then, too, maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy, where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel 
comfortable in 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 speaking to some of these questions yeah i i think that's very true i think uh again i think sometimes as churches we're a lot better at teaching especially young people teaching them what to believe but not why it's true and so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds learning bible verses uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers but again i think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And, and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We, we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in in how should I phrase this, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it, it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. And I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Uh, let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away, you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well, and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not, Not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here. But uh, the the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him. You know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God, it's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's, it's thequestionswithanswers.com. TheQuestionsWithAnswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch Him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch Him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Well, it's a great question, and the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, As a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about, you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even, even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin, that is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real. But if you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but I, you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. And I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is Virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory, that it, you know, at a point, you know, a finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point, and scientists believe this, and and I do too, and I think Genesis one one describes it, but. They, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning. 
But then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this, who created it. One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, it's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes, how or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it, and that they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc., and I agree with that. I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So what? What first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious. What are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced. Because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea. And you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart, it speaks to your deepest needs. But now some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two. That's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those kind, of, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and I, this is what I talk about in the chapter, in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a 1,000 pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a 1,000, and you're right, too. But in reality, there's a lot more than a 1,000 because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, one gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. 
And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, 
Why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with Christians, I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or, or, or theocracy or, or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is um, an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control of society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians just used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. 
Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, they're, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now has become a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in, not not consistently applied. Well, I think that those with Christianophobia they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable, and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others. Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface, um, is, is 
probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone to study race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. 
and yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore uh, there there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christian phobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not, are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we victimize some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a both-and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians. But we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that, you know, part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, they're, they're there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that uh, to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this. But in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point. In time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of um, 
skim the surface of this very deep topic, you can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, George Yancey. Com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile environment, understanding and responding to anti-Christian bias.